0: So before you leave for the mission field, you have all these final dinners, these kind of farewell dinners. Uh, One night we were having dinner with uh, one of my good friends who's actually considering coming and joining us on the mission field, uh, and his family, lovely Christian parents who had made this feast and were just sitting and enjoying chatting together, until I decided to ask an awkward question. I asked them how they felt about my friend, their son, coming to join us on the mission field. And I'll never forget, the room went silent, his mom began to tear up, and his dad said, mission is exciting, except when it's your family. And I couldn't sleep that night. I felt this awful weight of responsibility. What if my friend left his high-paying job, and he came to join us, and then things went poorly? What if he flushed his life down the toilet here and he came to find suffering there? I mean, I've only been in this job for a semester, but sometimes I wonder what will I do? What will I do if the Lord does grant success to AFES? If the numbers of people offering themselves for cross cultural missionary service do double and these missionaries go out and they suffer or even die for Jesus? What will I tell their parents? What would I tell your parents? What would you tell the parents of your students if they catch the vision for God's global work? You may only be apprentices, but you guys are firing live bullets. God could use you to raise up the next Jim Elliot, the next missionary martyr for Jesus. How do you feel about that? Having heard God's heart beating for mission, having seen his mind scheming for mission, we turn now to consider God's hands suffering for mission. As we compare our hands with his hands, our actions with his actions, as we come to the end of a conference on mission, how do you decide what to do about it? Because when it comes to making decisions, whether it's the big decisions that set the course of our lives or the million little decisions that fill up each footstep, when it comes to making mission decisions, I wonder whether we in the modern Western world are at a significant disadvantage. I mean, we have tools that Paul and Timothy could never have imagined, right? Can you imagine trying to explain the internet to Paul? (laughs) Zoom to a first century tent maker. I still remember trying to explain Google to my Nana. Like, you just type in what you want to know. What is Auntie Mavis doing right now? (laughs) (laughs) Hey, Timothy, we've got these contraptions that can fly you from Ephesus to Rome in under two hours. Just go visit Paul. We've got airplanes, cars, phones, podcasts, PayPal, videos, vaccinations, healthy food, fast food, central heating, long life expectancies and global wealth unprecedented. Wow, having explained all of that to Paul and Timothy, what do you think they would say? Do you think they would envy us? Would they be a little bit jelly? I mean, think of all the mission possibilities. Or do you think they might ask us then why, if we have such technological power, so much wealth in both worldly and spiritual terms, why are there so many Christians with so few resources? Or do you think they would turn to us and say, oh, now we understand. Now we understand why making mission decisions is so hard for you. Because our Aussie culture, with all of its technological control, able to arrange the world so that we experience as little of its hardship as possible, Our culture has become a culture that makes its decisions based on avoiding pain and pursuing pleasure. Now, obviously it's not a new idea. Jeremy Bentham, uh, here we go. He said this, he's a 16th century philosopher who helped invent the ethical theory of utilitarianism. But he wrote in the 16th century, nature has placed mankind under the governance of two sovereign masters, pain and pleasure. It is for them alone to point out what we ought to do, as well as to determine what we shall do. Hedonism has been around for a long time, right? But David Williams, who heads up missionary training for CMS, he's quite convincing when he argues that pain and pleasure have become the dominant way that our Aussie culture makes its decisions. It used to be that Westerners had an inner lawyer, an inner lawyer who said, do that, that's right or don't do that, that's wrong. Maybe those of Asian descent, they had an inner Confucius who said, do that. It will bring honor on you and your family. Or, you know, an inner Mushu from Mulan. Don't do that, dishonor on you, dishonor on your family. (laughs) Right? But now in modern Australia, we have an inner therapist. An inner therapist who says, do that. It'll make you feel good. Don't do that. It'll make you feel bad. Should I eat ice cream? Obviously, yes. What about pornography? I mean, the lawyer says no. Confucius definitely says no. But the therapist? Well, it doesn't bring anyone else pain, does it? And it brings you a whole lot of pleasure. Should I abort this baby? Could avoid a whole lot of pain. Should I spend as much time as I can playing video games? No-brainer. It's the message of almost every ad. It's the driving force of our culture's decisions. Avoid pain, pursue pleasure, and whatever makes you happy. Do you reckon the pain-pleasure worldview might make it hard to make difficult decisions, to take painful, costly actions for mission? I'm not sure if hedonist snowflakes will make the best missionaries. What about the way Christians make decisions? Think about the students you serve. How do they make decisions? Even if they manage to avoid the prosperity gospel, even if they manage to um, avoid the lie that pain means lack of faith and pleasure means God's blessing, and that therefore you should seek pleasure because God just wants you to be happy, right? Even then, have you heard your students use pain, pleasure language in their decision-making? I mean, I've heard it come out in the language of calling, I've heard people say, I don't feel called. Now, using the word feeling there wasn't a great start, but let's go on. Um, What follows isn't much better. They then say, I don't feel called to insert painful, hard thing that I don't really want to do. Instead, I feel called to insert pleasurable, relatively easier thing that I or my parents do want me to do. It always amazes me how God doesn't call many people to become plumbers or electricians, or Uber drivers, or martyrs. Now he always seems to be calling people to being doctors and lawyers and high-paying jobs where they can make money to send others out on mission once they've got a house and they're comfortable, or to pastor big churches and speak at conferences where they can make the biggest splash for Jesus and send everybody else out. Now, maybe that's a little bit cynical, but sometimes I wonder whether we use the language of calling to justify doing what we want. We take God's name in vain to justify seeking our kingdom first. When it comes to making costly decisions for cross-cultural mission, when it comes to raising up the next generation of those who will sacrifice as senders and suffer as goers, I wonder whether we in the modern West are at a significant disadvantage. We of all people need to return to God's word and to compare our hands with God's hands to hear the word that Paul wrote a tearful timothy because to timothy was written by a missionary to a missionary when it comes to raising up the next generation uh, paul had written a missionary manual it's more a missionary manual than a pastoral epistle to timothy was written to help timothy make difficult missionary decisions in the midst of suffering now some people think timothy was timid a weakling a bit of a wuss I think they forget that Timothy had served as Paul's right-hand man for 15 years. He had left his family to serve as a missionary with Paul through thick and thin. And there was plenty of thin, especially when you remember that to prove a theological point, Timothy had to get circumcised as a grown man. That is hardly weak. Wow. In fact, 1 Timothy tells us that Paul, he sent Timothy into cross-cultural conflict. Paul chose to send Timothy to Ephesus where his job would be, and this is not a fun job description, to confront a band of false teachers and their false behaviors. I mean, I hate conflict, but Timothy had left his home to go to a less-resourced place and preach in the line of fire. No, Timothy was not timid. But he was tearful. And this is what we learn in Paul's second letter and his final letter to Timothy. 2 Timothy 1 verse 3. Is this working? Judy, could you change this for me? It's just not working anymore. Thank you. As I remember your tears, I long to see you. Paul longs to see Timothy, not because he remembers their past successes, you know, the glory days, but because he remembers Timothy's tears. And by now, there's a lot to be tearful about. We don't have time to read the whole letter, even though it's only four chapters, but we do, I want to get you to have a feel for how central suffering is to the letter. So I've asked some of you to come up and just to read some of the central verses about suffering. So if you guys would come up in order, uh, just read up from here in a loud voice and just listen, guys, to how central suffering is to the letter. You can come up here to read from here if you would. Thank you. As I remember your tears, I long to see you. God gave us a spirit not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. I was appointed a preacher, an apostle, and teacher which is why I suffer as I do. But I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed, and I am convinced that he is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. You are aware that all who are are in Asia turned away from me, among whom are Phygelus and Hermogenes. May the Lord grant mercy to the household of Onesiphorus, for he often refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chains. You then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. Share in suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. Uh, But understand this, that in the last days, there will come times of difficulty. You, however, have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, my persecutions, And sufferings that happened to me in antioch at iconium and at lystra which persecutions i endured yet from them all the lord rescued me indeed all who desire to live a godly life in christ jesus will be persecuted as for you always be sober-minded endure suffering do the work of an evangelist fulfill your ministry for I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. Demas, in love with the present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Luke alone is with me. When you come, bring the cloak that I left. Alexander the Coppersmith did me great harm. The Lord will repay him according to his deeds. Beware of him yourself, for he strongly opposed our message. At my first defence, no one came to stand by me, but all deserted me. May it not be charged against them, but the Lord stood by me and strengthened me, so that through me the message might be fulfilled, proclaimed, and all the nations might hear it. So I was delivered by... From the lion's mouth, the Lord will deliver me from every evil deed and bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. Four short chapters and a whole lot of suffering. On the one hand, Paul, Timothy's trainer and father in the faith, has been thrown into prison for speaking about Jesus. Many of Timothy's co-workers were so afraid about suffering that they had given up. Many had given up on Jesus' mission, and some had given up on Jesus altogether. On the other hand, Timothy's been working in Ephesus for years now, but his success was not like Jonas. The false teachers Timothy had been sent to stop were still teaching lies, and now their lies sounded better than ever. Because, as we learn in chapter 2, verses 17 and 18, they're teaching, these false teachers, that the resurrection has already happened. Yeah, it's already happened. Resurrection life now. Free from sin, free from shame, from suffering. I mean, don't you desire your best resurrection life now? This message, it sounds so good. It's all pleasure, no pain, all prosperity, no sacrifice. How do you stop a message that promises what you desire, what you want? Even resurrection life, powerful life without suffering now. Especially when the only other choice is the shameful situation of Paul, chained and abandoned in prison. No, Timothy was not timid. He was tearful. And I wonder what you would say to Timothy. What would you say to encourage him in the midst of his suffering? What would you say to encourage him to make good missionary decisions? Please keep your Bibles open to the heart of this missionary manual, to 2 Timothy 2, verses 8 to 13. As we compare our hands with God's hands, we're commanded to remember the pattern of Jesus and Paul. The pattern of Jesus and Paul. Verse 8. Remember Jesus Christ. So Timothy's been teaching about Jesus for over 10 years. Why does Paul tell him to remember Jesus? Who can forget Jesus? He's kind of important. Well, sometimes we do forget the most basic things. Keys, friends' birthdays, Wedding anniversaries. But this command isn't just about not forgetting. It's about remembering. Keeping Jesus front and center when our culture's way of thinking would push him out of the focus. Paul commands Timothy, he commands us to remember two things about Jesus. The path of Jesus and the purpose of Jesus. First, the path of Jesus. From suffering to glory. The path of Jesus and Paul moves from suffering to glory, cross before crown. And I think this explains some of the puzzling details of the passage. For example, throughout 2 Timothy, Paul has already said Christ Jesus seven times. So why switch it up here to his first and only use of Jesus Christ? Christ Jesus seven times, then Jesus Christ. And then the second puzzling detail, Paul says that Jesus Christ was raised from the dead, descended from David. Why did Paul write that Jesus was raised from the dead and then tell us about his birth in the line of David? I'd expect birth before resurrection, like in Paul's letter to the Romans. But here he puts resurrection before birth. Why? Well, I think Paul is using these details to slow us down and focus us in on the shocking origins of Jesus. Because first, Jesus suffered. Before he was Christ Jesus, King Jesus. Because remember, Christ is not a surname, but a royal title. Before he was Christ Jesus, he was Jesus Christ. Paul focuses our attention not on the fact that Jesus was raised to life, but that he was raised from the dead from the lifeless, powerless, hopeless dead. Jesus was one of them. Paul focuses our attention not on the fact that Jesus was raised to David's throne, but that he was descended from David. When I asked one of the new believers that I was reading the Bible with in Buddhist Asia what he knew about David, he'd been reading the Psalms for the first time. And he said, I think David suffered a lot. Maybe we read Descended from David, and we remember the promises that God made David, that one of his descendants would rule on the throne forever. But first, remember that David's life was marked by suffering, sin, and finally death. And even when we do come to that promise that God made, well, what happened to David's descendants after David died? For hundreds of years, David's descendants did not trust God's promise. They lost the kingdom. They proved unworthy. For hundreds of years, no descendant of David was king. The descendants of David seemed weak and hopeless. Paul wants us to remember that Jesus Christ, who was raised from the dead, from the seed of David, his origins were shocking. His path began in suffering. Did you know that? The apostles and Nicene creeds, they use only one word to describe the life of Jesus. The life of Jesus, with his many wise teachings, exorcisms, miracles. One word. Suffered. He suffered. Christianity is the only major religion to have as its central focus the shame and suffering of its God the hands of our God are forever pierced. And just as Jesus suffered, so did Paul. I mean, you heard it already in this letter alone. Paul has been persecuted in three different cities, abandoned by his friends, put in prison, put on trial, hasn't got a cloak to warm him when the winter hits. He's facing the prospect of death. This letter doesn't even mention that he was shipwrecked, stoned, sick, sleepless, poor, attacked by people and poisonous serpents on the way. But here, Paul doesn't focus on the variety of his sufferings, but their intensity. Do you see it there? Paul is suffering to the point of being bound with chains like a criminal. And the word for criminal here is a word found in the Bible in only one other place, where it describes the two criminals who were crucified on either side of Jesus. In verse 8, Jesus is numbered with the dead. Here, Paul is only one step behind on that path. Numbered with the criminals condemned to die. I think the obvious question is why? Like why would Paul make decisions to suffer so much and so intensely? Well, the reason he gives is there at the end of verse 8. That peculiar phrase, my gospel. You see, the message about Jesus belonged to Paul in a way that it does not belong to you and me. Paul was particularly entrusted with the gospel. Because he saw Jesus, he saw him raised from the dead, and he was chosen as an apostle. And whenever we're tempted to doubt whether Christianity is true or not, how else can we explain the sufferings of the apostles? The sufferings of Paul, if he did not see the resurrected Jesus, who would suffer this many sufferings over such a long time and then die for something he knew to be false? No. Paul saw Jesus raised from the dead. This is why Paul preached and he practiced a message of suffering. This is why Paul, bound as a condemned criminal, could shout, but the word of God is not bound. You know, Paul may not have got to make it to gospel zero Spain like he had hoped, but if death is no boundary for God's word, these chains aren't going to stop it. Paul entered so intensely into Jesus' suffering because he knew Jesus' path of suffering didn't end there. Look at verse 10. Therefore, I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they also may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. Do you see where the path of Jesus and Paul ends? Jesus Christ becomes Christ Jesus We messed that up on our push first, didn't we? It's important. Jesus Christ becomes Christ Jesus from the dead, from the seed of David becomes eternal glory. Eternal glory. What does that even mean? We caught a glimpse of it yesterday, didn't we? The throne in heaven, the lion, lamb, the great multitude from all nations worshiping in peace for all eternity. Eternity means life that never ends, that never says goodbye, that never dies. Glory means no shame, no fear, no pain, no sorrow, no suffering, no denial, no faithlessness, never, ever, ever, only joy and love and peace and knowledge and honor forever and ever and ever together with all who love Jesus. Together with Jesus himself, with God his Father, and with the Holy Spirit, eternal glory belongs to our God. But our God will share his glory with us forever. And did you see the shocking promise of what glory looks like in the promises of verse 11 and 12? The saying is trustworthy, for if we've died with him, we also will live with him. If we endure, we will also reign him. Wow! Not only will we live, truly live forever, we will reign. Heaven isn't wasting time playing harps. Heaven is ruling a new creation. Little old me, little old you, sitting on the throne of Christ Jesus, sharing the rule that should only belong to Jesus. Sharing the glory of God Karen Watson was an American missionary whose heart broke for the suffering of the Iraqi people. So she resigned her job, she sold her house and car, she gave away most of her belongings, and she went into the middle of the war to minister to people. She knew the risk and she wrote a letter to be left with her pastor and to be opened and read if something had happened to her and she didn't return. In 2004, Karen was killed by a terrorist attack. The two-page handwritten letter began this way. If something happens and I do not return, there are no regrets, for I am with Jesus. She went on to say, my call is to obedience. Suffering is expected. His glory is my reward. Karen repeated and underlined twice. His glory is my reward. Brothers and sisters, whenever we are tempted to fear pain and pursue pleasure in this life, whenever we are sad and suffering, remember Jesus Christ. His glory is our reward. Eternal glory is worth suffering for, especially when we consider the only alternative. We all need to hear the warning of verses 12 and 13. Because there are only two ways to live in this world. There are only two ways to suffer, with Jesus or without Jesus. The only alternative to the path from suffering to glory is disowning. If we disown him, he will also disown us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot disown himself. My friends, Jesus will either welcome us into eternal glory or Jesus will disown us and we will suffer without Jesus now and forever. My friends, do not take this other path. Do not turn back from suffering with Jesus on this path from suffering to glory. Do not lose eternal glory. Do not be disowned by Jesus. Resurrection life now, your best life now, trying to minimize pain and maximize pleasure, however desirable that sounds, it ends only in suffering without Jesus, now and forever. No, come and suffer with the God whose hands are pierced forever. Come and make costly decisions for mission on the same path as Jesus and Paul. Come, endure on the path from suffering to glory. Keep enduring on the path from suffering to glory. And not just so that you can get eternal glory. No, the purpose of endurance is for others. And this is the final point. Look again at verse 10. Therefore, I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they also may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. I endure everything for the sake of others. This is classic Christianity. We don't endure just so that we will get eternal glory. We endure like Jesus did so that others will get eternal glory. But Paul doesn't say others here, does he? He says elect. Why? I think it's because Paul sees his suffering from God's perspective. I mean, if he looked from his own perspective, chained in prison, all the things he endures would seem lonely and futile, good for nothing, good for nobody. But when he looks from God's perspective, when he remembers the unchained word of God, he sees the success of his sufferings. You know, the doctrines Calvin taught, election, definite atonement, perseverance of the saints, these doctrines were not taught for armchair philosophers they were taught, they were written for suffering missionaries. Because God has chosen and he does not waste his servants' sufferings. Just as Jesus suffered successfully to purchase the people from every tribe and language and nation, just as Jesus suffered successfully, so Paul will endure everything knowing that his sufferings under the Lord, will be successful. They will play their part in the elect from all nations obtaining salvation in Christ Jesus. Isn't that what he says at the end of the letter? Check this out. Chapter 4, verse 16. At my first defense, no one came to stand by me, but all deserted me. But the Lord stood by me and strengthened me so that through me the message might be fully proclaimed and all the nations might hear it. Paul connects his small suffering in one place and one time with the work that God will do amongst all nations, amongst all the elect. Imagine if we shared. Imagine if we shared Paul's perspective. Imagine if we lived knowing our sufferings were not wasted. In times of pandemics, bushfires, floods, droughts, wars, endless disappointments, sleepless nights at conferences, the disappointments of not being with brothers and sisters we love. I know you, many of you, have been through suffering and challenges this last semester at university. Imagine if we memorized and made it into our everyday motto, I endure everything for the sake of the elect that they also may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. Imagine what sort of missionary decisions we would make. But if you're like me, you're probably wondering, how, how did Paul's sufferings affect others? How could my sufferings make any difference in somebody else's salvation? and the first and most important thing to say is that Paul's sufferings and our sufferings are not the source of anybody's salvations. Salvation is not in Paul. It's not in Richard Chin. It's not in Seth. No, salvation is in Christ Jesus. Our sufferings serve the gospel, but they are not the gospel. And the second thing to say about this question of how is that Paul doesn't say. bit annoying, I know. But uh, he doesn't explain here how his sufferings serve salvation. He just says that they do. If we had the time, I would have loved to show you four ways. I think the Bible teaches that our suffering connects with the salvation of others. But here, Paul isn't worried about explaining how his sufferings can be used. His point is that they will be used for the sake of the elect and for their eternal glory. The wonderful truth, brothers and sisters, is that if you suffer with Jesus, then your sufferings will be used for others. If you suffer with Jesus and Paul on the path from suffering to glory, your sufferings will not be meaningless or lonely or good for nothing. No, if you suffer with Christ, then your sufferings, no matter how small, insignificant, Or lonely, as long as they fit into that everything that Paul says he endures, your sufferings will be used for the eternally glorious salvation of others. Brothers and sisters, are you willing to suffer if it means salvation for others? Are you willing to endure anything and everything if it means eternal glory for the elect? Over the last 70 years, millions of people have become Christians in Southern Ethiopia. It's an incredible story, uh, which one writer described it this way. The story of the evangelization of Ethiopia is a story of men and women who left their fields, the familiarity of their culture, the security of their families, and who with Bible and water bottle in hand and confidence in their savior, took the message of Christ Jesus over the mountain ranges, beyond the rivers, to those who never heard of him. It's about their conviction that people without Christ are truly and eternally lost. It's about their dedication to the one who said, go, I'll be with you. And they went. And today, through the sacrifices and sufferings of men and women like these, there are thousands of churches throughout the mountains of southern Ethiopia. And I want to share just one story with you of an Ethiopian woman named Amone. Amone followed the path of Jesus and Paul. Amone left her family to go with her husband to a place named Gopha. It's a place where my grandfather would get to go as a missionary. It's a place where people had never had the chance up until then to hear about Jesus. And when Amone arrived in Gopha, she suffered. She was mocked, sometimes excluded. She grew sick and weak. And after a few years, Amone died. And I want you to hear a letter, it's a translated letter, of course, written by someone from Gofa to Amone's mother. Will you tell Amone's mother, sorry, I'm gonna tear up at this. Will you tell Amone's mother not to feel sorry because she allowed Amone to go to Gofa with her evangelist husband? Tell her not to weep because her daughter suffered and died in Gofa, It's because of Amone that I love Jesus today. It's because of Amone that Ajo loves Jesus today. It's because of Amone that Ajo's sister Martha loves Jesus today. Since Amone died, Ajo has said, I don't want to just live. I want to live like Amone lived. I want to work like Amone worked. I want to teach other women like Amone taught us. I don't want to just live. Do you see that far mountain? That is now where Ajo lives today with her evangelist husband. She is left here to go there and teach the women just as Amone came to teach us. Tell Amone's mother not to sorrow because Amone died here. The seed which Amone sowed is now bearing fruit. It's now beginning to bear much fruit. Be glad that you let Amone come to Gova. (laughs) Brothers and sisters, Are we willing to suffer if it means salvation for others? Are we willing to endure anything and everything if it means eternal glory for the elect? Are you willing to wake early and pray? Are you willing to fast to add a full-bodied exclamation to your prayers for the less reached and the less resourced? Are you willing to go without subscriptions Friends of mine to support us to go gave up Netflix and Spotify so they could have more to give. When was the last time that you gave something that actually cost you? When was the last time that you couldn't do something you wanted to do because you were giving to mission? Would your bank balance be enough to show that your heart beats as God's does for mission? Or is coffee your king? Three bucks a day, thousand bucks a year. How big a percentage is that? your yearly intake let me read you a little letter from one of our generous supporters hey I want to share something with you to encourage you and Kate not for bragging trumpets or fanfare recently I changed gyms from an okay standard one to a fancy more expensive one it's $20 more per week and this in itself is a story but it was actually really good for me to accept the blessing of God in this way anyway last Sunday when you spoke I realized that the extra $20 per week would be better invested in the people of Buddhist Asia than in a better gym. In eternity, which investment would I value more? Which one would I regret? The answer is a no-brainer. Today I arrange to finish at the fancy gym in a few weeks and then restart at the average one. I feel such happiness doing so. My wife is cheering me on, and I kind of feel God is cheering me on in this too. Wow, isn't that beautiful? Don't you want to live like that? Brothers and sisters, are you willing to suffer if it means salvation for others? Are you willing to flush your life here, down the toilet, for the chance of taking life to others there? Are you willing to look like a fool in the eyes of your friends, your family, an entire culture bent on avoiding pain and pursuing pleasure? Or maybe you're thinking, Seth, I don't know. I don't know if I could make the small sacrifices, let alone the big sacrifices It is hard. Cancelling subscriptions, changing gyms, waking up early to pray, walking to strangers, sending others. That sounds hard enough. How could I? You know, me, little me, I don't feel like I'm gifted or have anywhere near enough to become a martyr missionary. How could I ever make that decision? I don't feel nearly strong enough. Well, if God's heart beats for mission, if his mind schemes for mission, then what of his hands? What are the hands of God doing right now? What is God doing with all of his mighty power, seated on the throne at the center of heaven, able to send a storm to shipwreck Jonah in command of the great fish and the little worm? What is God doing with all of his power? Well, he sent his son who came to suffer for us. 2 Timothy tells us that he has sent us his spirit. Look again at 1 Timothy 1, verse 7. For God gave us a spirit not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. What for? What for? What is the spirit? What has he come for? Verse 8. For God gave us a spirit, not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. Therefore... Do not be ashamed about the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. God's power is given to us now by his powerful spirit so that we might suffer for the gospel. Chapter two, verse one, you then, my child, be empowered by the grace in Christ Jesus so that you might share in suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. Chapter 4, verse 16. At my first defense, no one came to stand by me, but all deserted me. But the Lord stood by me and empowered me, so that through me the message might be fully proclaimed, and all the nations might hear it. This is what God is doing with the power of his pierced hands. The spirit that raised Christ from the dead is at work in you and me so that we might say with Paul. Therefore, I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they also may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. Mission. God. We have seen the path of Jesus and Paul from suffering to glory. We have seen the purpose of Jesus enduring for others. So as we pray for his merciful heart for all nations to be our heart, as we pray for his kingdom to come on earth as it is in heaven, we are called, brothers and sisters, to follow our Lord Jesus Christ by the powerful spirit sent by God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We are called to act as God has acted To lay our hands in his hands and to make costly decisions for mission for ourselves and for others, for the elect, for the sake of his eternal glory.